0: The practice, the realm of our practice, is within conditionality, isn't it? Whatever yes. practice we do is within conditions. Right. So whatever we are doing is creating conditions. And if nibbana is by definition unconditioned. What condition can we possibly create to experience
1: nibbana? Okay. Well, oh, that's good. Uh, good question. Uh, The conditions we have to create to realize Nibbana are the states uh, free from uh, psychic irritants, defilements, uh, only under uh, such uh, situation we can realize Nibbana. That means uh, under the conditions where mind is uh, deluded, confused because of ignorance, uh, hatred and and, uh, greed, Nibbana cannot be realized. And uh, when these conditions uh, changed, that means uh, mind free from greed, hatred, and delusion. That, in that situation, we can realize nibbana. When we say greed, hatred, and delusion, all other host of defilements include are included. There are many, many uh, sudden defilements. They are all included. <coughs> yes, if you could say
2: a few words about differences in these three realms of dharma um, with respect to the perfect realization of truth you know the the, the theoretical the practical and experiential what in fact are the you know in terms of realization what are the
0: differences here
1: in uh, theoretical one has to uh, learn the theory, uh, with uh, open mind, with um, investigation, uh, questioning, uh, until uh, the theory becomes very clear. Buddha said uh, in one place, uh, as soon as uh, wrong dhamma appears, right dhamma will disappear. That means when the dhamma is uh, mixed with uh, wrong notions, concepts, interpretations, ideas, interpolations and so forth, as soon as those things uh, come and mixed with dhamma, people will not be able to see what dhamma is. (coughs) Uh, Therefore one has to very closely examine the theories, especially this time and age of our human, uh, uh, exploding human knowledge, we can see uh, the the Dhamma uh, has been uh, mixed with uh, numerous things. and therefore people have a lot of questions in their mind as to what really Dhamma is. So therefore in learning, through the learning process, one has to sort out, spending a lot of time to find out which really, which, Dham, which is real Dhamma, which can really lead us to the goal, doing the open eye and which is not. In the name of dharma, when you actually, when you, since a lot of books are available these days, when you take up a few books, you can see different interpretations, confusing theories and so forth. So that is the first part, sorting out, classifying, just like in scientific investigation. We have to check and find out which is true, and that is the theoretical part. Then, once one sorted sorted out what is real dhamma, then one has to put that into practice in daily life. Of course, the practice, practical aspect is uh, not secondary in, by any means to the, the theoretical aspect, because the, the true realization of dhamma comes definitely from the practice. If we, if we start doing wrong practice, of course, we will end up in a lot of confusions. Uh, it is um, there's, that one of the sutras I mentioned earlier, Alagaddupama Sutta. Uh, Alagad Alagaddupama means a snake, a snake simile. Sutta says, if uh, somebody wants to catch snakes, the person should know the way how to catch the snake, the art of catching snakes. <laughs> Otherwise, he will be in danger his own endanger his own life. The wrong grasp of dhamma uh, by not understanding will lead to confusion and danger. Therefore, the first is sorting out. Second is. Once sorted out, putting that sorted-out dhamma into practice. And that definitely, if, it is, if the person sorted out and, correct, and chose the dhamma proper, will definitely lead to the realization, attainment, understanding, liberating oneself from dukkha. Well,
2: this is kind of a loaded question in a way, but I don't. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's just that it, it's a question which I often ask myself, or I want to ask other people. In terms of education, in terms of learning, it's is what is really the? Can you say what is the value of um, of mundane knowledge of learning mundane knowledge when it when it's mundane and Therefore, not wholesome, If do you understand my question?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Most of our, you know, learning that we do <coughs> could be considered mundane, especially in our formal systems of education.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, my mundane knowledge is uh, sometimes helpful survival in the society. Uh, One cannot uh, very quickly be isolated uh, oneself from everything uh, to practice the dhamma. If one has such opportunity, of course, by all means one should grab it and do it. But as long as uh, uh, one has to live Uh, in the society with others, the mandin dhamma is important for that purpose. And also, the dhamma that the Buddha taught is so pervasive, spread out in all branches of human knowledge. However, one may not be able to learn everything uh, to understand dhamma, but uh, dhammic uh, nature we can find in anything we learn—philosophy, uh, psychology, science, physics, whatever we learn—you can see the nature of dhamma pervaded, you know, permeated into all these. Uh, areas. Just like when one wants to study a certain subject, one uh, has one has to read many many books pertaining to that subject, so that uh, by reading many books, the person's knowledge of the subject becomes clearer, because uh, different people approach the subject from different perspectives.
2: Mm-hmm. But isn't isn't this assuming that one is is approaching it all with an
1: open mind? With open mind. Yes. With open mind. Sure. Uh, Then one comes to a certain stage now enough. Uh, In in the Mangala Sutra, which we have mentioned in this book. By the way, this Vandana book uh, I purposely made in such a way that people can learn little Pali and learn very basic dhamma. In that uh, Vandana book uh, we have a sutra called Mangala Sutra. In that sutra, Buddha said, bhāhu-sācchāñca-sippāñca-vinayocu-susikkhito. susikkhito "Bahu sipancha" means learning many sciences and, and uh, arts to improve the knowledge, just to widen, have to have a very b- broad base of knowledge. <coughs> that would never be uh, dangerous, although they are mundane. (coughs) Especially for lay people, vast learning, vast knowledge is very important for their uh, ordinary, mundane activities. Of course, when one uh, renounces the world, gives up all these things, then what one needs is learning the Dhamma pure. Until such moment, <laughs> I think those things are important. Yes, sir. I about it's important that you have a clear insight about your own knowledge, insight, and so on, and about your state, that when someone asks about that, you can explain it. But i ever, I ever heard, always heard, that it is not proper, to to ask, to inquire um, someone uh, or to tell someone about your state of enlightenment? Sure. Unless the uh, uh, state of enlightenment uh, is asked by a um, fellow um, monk or nun. <coughs> they ask the uh, question, especially those uh, monks and nuns who practice Meditation very seriously. Occasionally, in order to get encouragement, support, help from each other, uh, they discuss. They ask, "What stage have you attained?" And at a such situation, <coughs> excuse me, one has to impart his knowledge and, and tell him what he has attained. I, I'm surprised because I heard. That, it is not, not proper to do that. Also between monks and nuns? No. Among monks and nuns it is quite proper. its Dasadharma Sutra, this is one of the sutras that Buddha taught. Uh, uh, one of the factors is, uh, if fellow brahmacharin asks you whether you have attained higher stage of uh, attainments, enlightenment and so forth, uh, you should not feel um, uh, embarrassed to tell them that you have not attained any stage. That means you must constantly be alert, mindful uh, of the fact that uh, how quickly I should attain this stage so that if anybody of my fellow fellows ask me, I should not say I should not uh, say no I have not attained the, the state that means sort of a urgency that is called dhamma sangvega a sort of encouragement for them among themselves to attain the state asking that question uh, not for any other purpose
0: mm-hmm. yeah i have a question <coughs> um, this is my first
2: exposure to Buddhism i have i have never really seriously um, been to any kind of a conference on Buddhism, and I wonder—I haven't heard anything, or maybe I, I have heard it and, and just went over my head—about right or wrong, or um, guidelines for behavior, or like like the Christians have the Bible, the. Uh, Jew- Judaism has the Bible. There are other religions that <coughs> guidelines.
1: I haven't heard anything like that here. <laughs> I don't understand the philosophy. Is. You know, I purposely did not mention anything about that today because tomorrow I am going to speak on uh, on that uh, uh, topic. <coughs> today I am um, supposed to speak on the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. I try to strict myself to, you know, you know, confine myself to this particular subject, area, uh, without, without uh, trying to make cross-reference to other areas. Uh, tomorrow, are you coming for tomorrow? No. Oh, I am sorry. <laughs> yes, I can mention uh, briefly, uh, yes, there are guidelines for monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, For monks, there are 227 guidelines, what we call precepts, for monks and nuns. Nuns have uh, 251, monks have 227, and lay men and women have ten precepts, eight precepts, and the basic minimum five precepts that they have to follow. These are precepts, not commandments. They are accepted voluntarily individuals by, by individuals to observe. They don't start like, uh, thou shalt not kill, but they say, I will undertake the precepts of such and such, to do such and such. That means voluntarily, as uh, matured, rational, uh, responsible, independent, freedom-loving person would do always, I will undertake with dignity, with responsibility. I will undertake such and such principle. I will not break it. Like that, there are principles for bo- all of us to follow. And that particular section is called Vinaya. Madam, I'm sorry, I am sorry, so many things to say. Buddha's teaching... He after attainment of enlightenment he lived forty five years and gave eighty four thousand sermons. These people want me to summarize in eighty four minutes <laughs> <What> is <it? laughs> that is impossible eighty four thousand sermons approximately five sermons a day he he hardly rested two hours a day twenty two hours he worked and uh, his teaching is divided into three broad categories. One is called Vinaya, Sutta, and Abhidhamma. Vinaya means code of disciplines for monks, nuns, and lay people. There are five thick volumes of Vinaya rules. Uh, each volume may have about uh, three, four hundred pages. Uh, then Vinaya Sutta means Discourses, parables, instructions, advices, just like what we were doing today. And Abhidhamma is his uh, uh, psychological, philosophical, metaphysical teaching. So, in fact, today I wanted to run uh, down very briefly the list of things, but since time was so short, I uh, didn't want to do that. Uh, for the, since you asked the question, <coughs> at the expense of everybody's, uh, you know, pleasure, let me uh, <laughs> uh, spend a few minutes on this part. Uh, where is that? Yeah. <coughs> There are seven thousand seven hundred sixty-two sutras in one section, another section nine thousand five hundred fifty-seven sutras, and Madhyminikaya middle and saying has hundred fifty-two sutras. Dīgni has uh, 34 sutras in Sutta Pitaka. And um, recently somebody <coughs> who is trying to put uh, the teaching, uh, Buddha's teaching into computer, this uh, CD discs, uh, told me that he has calculated that there are uh, uh, 350 a thousand different uh, uh, words, 350,000 different words, not all, uh, mm. uh, it, it, not uh, uh, synonyms and uh, antonyms and so forth, but different. Um, therefore, it's a very vast portion uh, uh, of uh, literature uh, since he lived that long. Perhaps many other teachers did not live that long to teach. Uh, uh, as uh, he did. So, yes, there are a lot of rules and <laughs> regulations. Yes. yes. I, I, I'm in office myself, and I, I'm not sure
0: about this question. But what would be considered the greatest precept for
1: all? Would be considered most
0: is... important. You not? Know, if you had to choose a precept.
1: Oh yeah. Just like in uh, Christianity, uh, the golden rule, in Buddhism, uh, the golden rule is the same. Loving kindness. Loving kindness encompasses uh, many precepts. Uh, Almost all the precepts uh, have uh, something to do with loving-kindness, the universal, uh, unconditional loving-kindness. We can say, if we were to uh, pick one uh, precepts of all these, we must say loving-kindness. That means uh, abstaining from killing, stealing, uh, committing uh, uh, sexual misconduct, lying, and uh, taking intoxicating drinks and drugs that causes infatuation and heedlessness. These are the five basic precepts. All these precepts have their positive aspect. The positive aspect is loving kindness. Out of loving kindness we don't kill. Out of loving kindness we don't steal. Like that. Yes. So, Without any hesitation, we must say the, the basic, one outstanding principle of uh, Buddhism is uh, principle of peace. We can never have peace without living kindness. And he said, um, in uh, one sermon, he said, uh, just like the ocean, all waters in all oceans in the world, has one taste, the taste of salt. Similarly, the entire teachings of the Buddha has one taste, that is the taste of peace. Upasama sukha, he said. And that peace can never be achieved without loving kindness. <laughs> is compassion the
0: same as loving kindness?
1: Compassion is an outcome of loving-kindness. There are four uh, illimitables. Uh, One is loving-kindness. When loving-kindness is fully grown and grounded, from that three things can arise. Uh, One of the three is uh, compassion. Third, or the second of the three is uh, appreciative joy. And the third of the three is uh, equanimity. Now, compassion can never arise without loving-kindness. That is the base. And appreciative joy means uh, we can never appreciate somebody, some achievement, something, somebody's appearance, somebody's success, somebody's behavior, good behavior, and so forth. We can never appreciate if we don't have loving-kindness. We must um, not only loving-kindness, just ordinary attachment. That is, ordinary is called love. If you don't love somebody, you cannot appreciate that individual's uh, achievements, success. For instance, parents have tremendous love for their children, many parents. (laughs) <laughs> not, all. not all. Not all, because some parents are neurotic, sick. Uh, they are not basically they are bad. Basically, they are good, but because they are conditioning by their parents and their parents and so forth, this uh, unwholesome uh, conditioning uh, is. Uh, transferred from parents to parents generation after generation and therefore some parents uh, actually have been mistreated by their parents and therefore they transfer that to their children. Otherwise any parents would love their children if they are normal. Therefore when children do something these four states of uh, four states that I mentioned are compared to a mother, benevolent mother, who behaves towards her children. For instance, when the baby is in the womb, mother has tremendous love and care. Many mothers give up many wrong things when they are conceived. Giving up smoke, giving up drink, giving up drugs, and so forth. Why? Not for themselves, but for the baby inside. Therefore, that is an indication of love for the baby. When the baby is born, uh, mother is so concerned about the baby. Uh, when baby cries, the first person in the house to run to the baby would, the, would be the mother, before anybody else. There, Because mother has tremendous compassion for the baby, baby's welfare. Then the third is uh, when the baby grows up and uh, uh, performs well and comes home with good grades and uh, good um, you know a lot of uh, uh, presents in, from school and so forth uh, more than even the father mother would enjoy and mother would feel very proud of her child. Then, when the child grows up and becomes independent and lives good life, uh, mother knows that the child person is uh, independent and uh, free and does things for himself or herself. And in the in her inside her mind, there's a sort of contentment. He's doing well. All right, I'm happy. My child is doing well. That is called equanimity, even-mindedness. Now, these four sublime states, uh, I mean, these mothers, uh, these four uh, different type of behavior towards the child is uh, comparable to these four sublime states. Loving kindness, just like mother's attitude towards the baby when the baby is in the womb. Uh, Compassion, just like mother when the baby is sick, mother frowns to the baby. And appreciative joy is when the child grows up and... uh, enjoys life, mother appreciates it. And equanimity is contentment, you know, feeling very even. No matter how many children mother has, she has um, equal feeling for all children. Some children maybe may do better than others, and still mother has certain equanimous feeling after all. He's my child, she thinks. So, all this grows from uh, the beginning of loving-kindness. And therefore, uh, Buddha has made this uh, analogy to explain this full state of, uh, what you call, sublime state.
0: Remember um, you know, when you started out and you said um, that the Dharma, I, I think you were talking about the meaning of the word, the literal meaning of the word, and you were talking about um, uh, it's the thing upon which everything else rests. Right. Is that then love? Not loving kindness. The base, kindness?
1: yes, the base.
0: So then, could one say that the that the Dharma is in fact loving kindness?
1: <coughs> right. One can say. Buddha said that very clearly. One universal factor that binds all beings together is loving kindness. One universal factor. Of course, uh, since we do not practice it so well, we are fragmented. <coughs> we are, you know, divided. Uh, but if we practice that, that is the only thing that brings us, all of us together. Yes, sir?
0: You talked earlier about uh, stream entry and the, uh, uh, and the work of awareness or consciousness in different circuits. Uh, I'm interested in, because there's a sense of transformation in that, that you're working with intellect and <coughs> mundane knowledge and memory, and memory is my particular uh, interest. How does uh, memory fit into the mundane world and in the teachings? Where would I find uh, uh, information on the development of memory and its use towards enlightenment and working in the uh circuits?
1: Meaning, how we develop memory? Mm-hmm.
0: Is, it, is that taken by. Uh, is it taken. Is there an intention to develop memory uh, through uh, the Dhamma? And is there a teaching for it?
1: Uh, there is no one particular teaching, but Buddha said very uh, precisely uh, to a certain. Uh, Individual who was uh, uh, who was losing his memory, and uh, went to the Buddha and uh, mentioned it to him, and he said, uh, uh, "So long as you practice mindfulness fully, well, uh, you will be able to develop your memory." The reason why. Uh, we lose our memory is um, that the mind is confused, filled with all kind of uh, other confusing states, like uh, psychic irritants, you know, various mental, uh, unwholesome mental states, which can uh, mar the path of uh, memory, weaken. And uh, therefore when we remove that obstacle, uh, of uh, memory, memory improves. So, one meaning of sati, mindfulness, uh, is memory. Uh, uh, mind The word mindfulness uh, the, or sati has many, many meanings. One of them is memory, remembering. Why we become unmindful? Because we don't remember. We forget to be mindful. Since we forget to be mindful, we are unmindful. If we are mindful or if we remember to be mindful, we practice mindfulness. Therefore, both uh, the practice and uh, the memory go hand in hand. So, the training, uh, Buddha's um, very definite uh, method of improving memory is to practice mindfulness vigilantly Uh, by by any means. Friends, um, we are running out of time. We have to have a short break before we start the next topic. Next topic, uh, as time uh, <laughs> goes by, <laughs> was, you know, time is coming to very close now. So we have a very short break. Five. Minutes. We have very short time for this uh, session. Do you want to stop it at four o'clock? I
0: think so. I can check with Deborah and see. I think it's mainly up to the group.
1: Yeah, I think you have a question too, somewhere. Yeah. So, <clears throat> next topic is Sangha. Now, today uh, we, we were talking about Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. These three are called uh, triple gem or Buddhist uh, trinity so to say. In Christianity you have Trinity, uh, the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost. In Hindus they have Trimurti, Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh. Buddhists have uh, three refuges, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. But these three refuges in Buddhism is uh, quite different from other uh, traditions. Uh, For instance, In Christianity, uh, Father, Son and the Holy Ghost is all in one. People have nothing to do with that. Ordinary people have nothing to do with that. That is something completely different and uh, people have um, respect and so forth. In Trimurti, in Hinduism, Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh, also uh, people don't have participation in that and ordinary people can never enter into that situation. In Buddhist uh, three refuges, any of you can come into that category. Anybody. That is one difference. Sangha is the last of these three refuges, and also uh, an object of veneration, respect. The word sangha, uh, in the wider sense means a community <clears throat> in its uh, grammatical form a very very strict grammatical sense anything more than three any community more than three is called Sangha less than three is not considered to be Sangha less than three is called guna. G H A and Gana. No, G A and Gana. Not H. And individuals are called Pugala. So we have three categories Pugala, Gana and Sangha. Any number more than four is called Gana. is called Sangha. But Sangha has different categories bhikkhusanga bhikkhuni sangha upasaka sangha upasika sangha here we have four then uh, bhikkhusanga is uh, bhikkhusanga means uh, ordained male monks bhikkhuni sangha means ordained female nuns Upasaka Sangha means lay men. Upasaka Sangha means lay women. Now, when we say Bhikkhu Sangha, Bhikkhuni Sangha, by uh, very strict uh, implication the novices are not included the word bhikkhu means ordain highly ordained monks or bhikkhuni highly ordained nuns that means if somebody ordained and uh, has not received high ordination ordination has two stages novice ordination and high ordination. Novice ordination means one who accepts only ten precepts which are called pabbadja Dasasikka. Ordain ten precepts. That individual is not counted as a bhikkhu bhikkhuni, whether male or female. Until that individual receives high ordination, if the person is a junior, less than twenty years in age, uh, can never receive high ordination. Only after twenty, that individual can receive high ordination. Then from that point onward, that individual is considered to be a bhikkhu or bikuni, depending on the sex. Then, <coughs> Buddha said, this community of Sangha, ordained Sangha, shines the the dispensation, uh, the Buddha's teaching, provided they are learned, wise, practicing the Dhamma, and erudite very easily, well, they can explain the Dhamma to others. Dhammadhara. Dhammadhara. means uh, being able to teach the Dhamma. Vyatta, bahusuta, Visharada, uh, These are the attributes. They have to be uh, well uh, educated in Dhamma, being able to teach the Dhamma, practice the Dhamma, and understand, realize the Dhamma. When Buddha was, uh, it is said that Mara, evil one, the death, the lord of death, so to say, approached the Buddha many times and asked him to, as soon as he attained enlightenment, uh, Mara approached him and said, now you have fulfilled your du- duties, you have nothing else to do, you have done what is to be done and attained what has to be attained, now your function is complete, why don't you pass away now? He said, ah, I still have another duty. That is, as long as bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasakas, upasikas, these four segments of the sangha is not well educated in dhamma, has not realized the dhamma, has not undertaken the practice of dhamma, has not attained enlightenment, I will not pass away. Then after 45 years, he found, after establishing the order of Sangha, Bhikkhu, Bhikkhuni, he found many thousands of monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen, were well educated in the Dhamma, practicing the Dhamma, attained enlightenment, and uh, were able to teach the Dhamma to others. Then he decided, now time has come. For me to pass away. And uh, he predicted three months hence, one in, uh, in the month of uh, February, two thousand uh, five hundred and uh, thirty-six years ago, to be exact, <laughs> in the month of February. He declared three months hence, I will pass away at such and such place in Kusinara. He made the declaration several hundred miles away from Kusinara and uh, started walking and walked uh, uh, to the place uh, in Kusinara and exactly at the appointed moment Uh, he passed away, (coughs) not unconsciously, with full awareness, full consciousness, and having given the last sermon, you know, uh, he said, uh, when he was going to pass away, uh, a young man called uh, Subhadda, uh, came running to ask uh, some questions, then his uh, personal attendant, disciple Venerable Ananda said, oh, no more. He's very weak. I'm going to pass away. Don't come, to ask any question. Buddha overheard this and said, "Ananda, it's all right. Let him come. Let him come." So he came, and Buddha answered his questions, and then he said, "This is it. Now you go. <laughs> Practice this. Let me die." <laughs> so conscious, so fully aware of everything. And while everybody was watching, hundreds and hundreds of monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen were watching, because he has announced three months in advance, I will pass away at such and such place on such and such date. So the news spread all over the country, so thousands of people flocked together to see him crying, see him passing away, but they were so sad, mourning, crying, weeping, you know, So he said, remember, I told you, everything is impermanent, this body, impermanent, why worry? I have done what is to be done, attained what is to be attained, and now my duty is done. Go, practice the Dhamma. And he passed away, while everybody was watching. And then, he, before that, he established the order of Sangha. I think this is not anything, any exaggeration. The one, only first religious teacher in human, religious, uh, what do you call, in, in, in the history of religion, who had such a skill, capacity of organizing. He organized the Sangha in such a way that uh, uh, no other religious tradition at that time or or after uh, had such a beautiful organization. Uh, He he, uh, appointed disciples, two chief disciples, male and female. two male disciples, two chief disciples, two female chief disciples, and eighty specialists monks, and eighty specialist nuns, and uh, who were as good as Buddha himself. So much so that when, sometimes we can see in the Tipitaka, certain sermons delivered by his disciples, and Buddha approved them. Sariputta sermons, Vendabhan Ananda sermons, Mogalana sermons, and Vikhuni Dhammadinna sermons, Kema sermons, and so forth. When uh, they gave sermons, Buddha approved them and said, this exactly would have been the way that I would de- deliver this sermon. This is just as good as I did. So, he gave full confidence. To these monks, nuns, uh, laymen, laywomen, and then passed away. Then, therefore, the sangha community of sangha, uh, has two other categories. That category is called arya sangha and uh, 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 anarya sangha. Arya-sangha means uh, uh, the the members of the sangha who had attained enlightenment. One of the the four stages of enlightenment, at least. First uh, stream entry, uh, second stage, third stage and fourth stage, and these individuals can be either laymen, laywomen, or monks, or nuns. Laymen can attain enlightenment. Laywomen can attain enlightenment. Monks can attain enlightenment. Nuns can attain enlightenment. Therefore, those who have attained enlightenment, whether they are monks, nuns, laymen, or laywomen, fall into the category of Arya Sangha, noble Sangha, holy Sangha the Sangha that is worthy of our reverence, our respect, worthy of gifts and salutation, supreme field of marriage for the world, they may be a lay person. What is required for a lay person to be included in the community of Sangha, in the community of holy Sangha, is the attainment of enlightenment. Therefore, when we pay respect to the Sangha, we don't aim only at ordained monks or nuns. The robe uh, has nothing to do with the attainment of enlightenment, holiness. In robe there can be rogues. That is inevitable. As Buddha said, uh, as the number of uh, members of the Sangha increased, the number of rogues can also be increased. exactly as it happened, after the Buddha, uh, while Buddha was alive, there have been many uh, uh, unwholesome, uh, found behavior, unwholesome behavior among uh, uh, monks and nuns. Not so much of nuns, but particularly among monks. After he passed away, that number increased. So they had to um, hold councils. In the first council, a number of monks were expelled, and some even did not attend attend the conference. Uh, I'm attended the conference. Then. 100 years later, they held another council from which another group of monks were expelled and some did not attend attend the conference. And the third council was held in the 3rd century BC, uh, sponsored by Emperor Ashoka. uh, And from that council also many uh, unwholesome monks were dispelled. Uh, therefore, the, the robe does not represent holiness. Although uh, one who wears the robe is expected to be holy, is expected to live a, a noble life, a pure life, holy life, uh, the robe does not necessarily mean holiness <coughs> what uh, makes one holy is the state of mind is the attainment of purity enlightenment and therefore the community of sangha included uh, laymen laymen too the holy community therefore the sangha Uh, Again, divided into three categories. Now, remember these categories. First category of Sangha is uh, lay men, lay women, uh, monks and nuns. Second category of Sangha is uh, noble Sangha and ignoble Sangha, so to say. Arya Sangha and anarya Sangha. Arya Sangha and ordinary Sangha. Third category of Sangha is uh, Arahant, the, those who have attained the highest stage of enlightenment. And others are called uh, Sekha. Uh, Sekha means those who are striving, practicing uh, to attain enlightenment. That means they are from the first stage of enlightenment to the third stage, those who are in this, in this category. Those who are in, uh, in the category between first stage and the third stage are called sakers, The trainers, they learn to become, they, they are still striving to attain enlightenment. But they have already attained uh, two stages, first stage and second, I mean three stages, first stage, second stage and third stage. And the third category of sangha, is those who have not attained enlightenment, not even the first stage of enlightenment, but their heart is as pure as that of a one who has attained the first stage of sainthood. They may not have attained yet, but they are so close, so close to that attainment. We can find them, such beings, among any human beings anywhere. But the confirmation comes from the attainment of the first stage of sainthood. Beyond that, before that, there is no confirmation. Why? One who has not attained the first stage of sainthood is still liable to change the mind because mind is so fickle, and uh, full of still uh, there may be doubts and uh, defilements and so forth. Only when one attains the first stage of sainthood, then he gets a confirmation. Who confirms it? The Buddha? Dhamma? Sangha? No one. He confirms himself or herself. Therefore, this attainment is um, uh, the attainment of 100% honesty. Once he attains that, he or she attains that stage, nobody can take him out of that state, and say one time he was a saint, after a hundred years we cannot say, well, we found, found some mistake in his side, uh, we take him out of the calendar, <laughs> and say he is no longer a saint. You cannot do that, because nobody confirms it. But that individual, himself or herself, and uh, and therefore the uh, the sangha of the the Buddha's uh, dispensation is uh, uh, the the representation of uh, achievements. Of uh, uh, spiritual achievement, uh, spiritual success, uh, reduction of defilements, and attaining libera- liberation, enlightenment. And that is why the sangha is included in the triple gem. Three uh, refuge. I think I had to be uh, very <laughs> brief and. Uh, I <laughs> uh, must abide with the rules and regulations here, so I had to stop for that. How After the session is so short, <laughs> without giving you any time to ask questions, of course you may ask your questions. I don't think uh, anybody would penalize us for spending a little a lot of time. Hmm?